You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Bible study, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're looking at a new temple this morning. I remember before uh, I met Joanna, if you were to ask me, what are some requirements that you have that you're looking for in, in a potential spouse? And I would say there was like two really, like really important ones. Um, on top of the fact that she needed to be a believer and that she needed to love church and whatnot, she, she needed to be willing to go anywhere because I wasn't sure at that time where God was calling me, but I knew it could be anywhere. I had just finished serving overseas in the Philippines. I was open to going anywhere in the world and knew that if I married someone who wasn't willing to go, that that would hinder us, that we wouldn't be yoked in that way, equally yoked. So that was the one, one thing. The second thing, which is just very critical, she had to be a Florida Gators fan. I'm like, growing up, I would see, you know, like these car signs that you put, uh, um, not, not bumper stickers, what do you call them? License plates, there you go, like on the front or back of cars. And uh, it would say house divided, and it'd be either Florida, Georgia, or Florida, Florida State. And I just remember going, mm-mm, nope. Not sure how they do that. Like, if we're cheering on two different teams at the same time, like, that, that, that can't happen, right? Um, and so I wanted to make sure that we had a unified household, not just around the Lord, but also around who we were cheering for, right? That was really important to me. But just in general, we live in a divided world, don't we? I mean, we divide over all kind of sorts of things. We, we divide over food, right? You've got people who are pro-beef, pro-dairy, and people who are like pro-plants. And like, you know, I'm in the grocery store. I'm like, oh, look, look at these chicken nuggets. And then Joanna will remind me, that's not chicken, right? And I have to look at it and see, oh, yeah, it's plant-based. Like, why, why do they call it chicken nuggets, right? Um, but we divide over food. We divide over politics, of course, right? And we just keep dividing further. Uh, we divide over technology, right? You have Team Apple, you have Team Android, like just, just about any scenario or any division or function in our society, we have opportunity to divide over, right? Well, the gospel breaks down divisions. In fact, the gospel within the church brings together people from all sort of backgrounds, all sort of um, conditions and walks in life. And when the church lives out a unity that is diversified, it has a voice to the world to speak into them, right? Because the world looks at a church when it's operating according to the gospel and according to the scriptures, and, and the world looks at it and goes, that's just strange, right? How do all those people, young and old, right? Um, all kind of different economical, social, uh, racial backgrounds. How can all those people come together and actually function as one body? That is strange. And, and when we do that, we actually have a voice to say something even better to them. We, we can say, well, if you think that's strange, we believe in a man who has died and then risen from the grave. And that's strange, right? And not only has he risen from the grave, he can forgive you of your sins, and give you peace, and give you hope. So we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and in chapter 1, we looked at the fact that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Jesus. It is through Jesus that we receive everything that we possibly could be once we believe. And Paul explained that God has chosen us to be adopted as sons and daughters, that Jesus has redeemed us from our sins, and that the Holy Spirit sealed us. And just thinking about the ways in which God loves us and that he saves us, it 
causes Paul just to burst out into praying that we would know the greatness of what that means, the inheritance that is waiting for us, and the power that we have as believers. We have the same power that rose Jesus from the grave. And so last week we looked at the fact that that power now has been demonstrated in the fact that without Jesus, everyone is dead in their sins. Now, we talked about the fact that it's not like they're drowning and holding on to a life raft. No, they're 20,000 leagues under the sea, dead, 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 right? Uh, but we looked at the fact that God in his grace is a God who saves. And even though we were dead, he gives us life by grace. We are saved. So now we are these new creations created to walk in good works in which Christ has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. And so this week, then, our passage moves on from what God has done to the individual to what now God has done to the community. God has created a new community through the gospel. And so through the gospel, we're now fellow citizens. We're members of God's household. We're a new temple made of living stones that God lives in. But Paul begins first by reminding us again of the reality that without the gospel, we're alienated. So look at point number one. It says alienation from God and each other. Alienation from God and each other. So we'll look at verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians chapter 2. It says, so then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. So while in verses 1 to 3, again, Paul was describing all of mankind as dead in our sins here, he's specifically describing Gentiles. Now, the Old Testament would break down all of the world into two categories. You were either an Israelite, chosen by God, obviously uh, at the end of Genesis, or in the book of Genesis, through Abraham, Father Abraham, uh, and then in Exodus, created as a, uh, a new nation that he redeems from Egypt and gives the promised land. You were either an Israelite or you were a Gentile. That is how the... Old Testament breaks everything down. But notice what Paul says in these verses. He says, not only were we Gentiles, but he says that you were without Christ. You were alienated from Israel. You were alienated from the covenants of promise. You were without hope. You were godless. And that is the actual picture of what it looked like for the nations outside of Israel who had not heard of the good news that there was a God who saved there was a God who saves. And so when we think about this idea that when, when Moses received the law and when the nation of Israel was formed, right, um, what, what was supposed to happen is Israel was supposed to receive that law and then say to the world, this is what it looks like to have the living God among you. This is what it looks like to, to have forgiveness and peace. This is what it looks like to have healing and, and basically blessings from the God who has created all things. And instead of being a light to the nations like Israel was supposed to be, instead what they did is said, 
We're better than the nations, right? And they begin to look down on the nations. In fact, I mean, essentially, both Jews and Gentiles looked at each other as if each other were dogs, the lowest of the low. Now, I know, like in America, we, we love dogs, right? So we don't think of dogs as being dirty animals, right? But most of the nations around the world, you don't have a dog in your house, right? Dogs are just basically big rats, right? And so, not so in our house, right? We have two dachshunds. Now, my wife might think that they're rats. Um, but in general, like, we treat them like they're domesticated, like, we love, like they're part of the family, right? But, but, but to be called a dog in the ancient Near East especially was to be called basically disgusting, right? And that's how the Jews and Gentiles looked at each other. So, uh, again, the, the Jews looked down upon Israel... Uh, or sorry, the Jews looked down upon the Gentiles, and the Gentiles despised the Jews for being judged and being looked down upon. So you had this hostility between the two groups. But when we think about that, it doesn't, it doesn't end with Jew-Gentile, right? We actually do that in our own lives. God gives us good things. And we take those good things and we elevate them in our hearts to ultimate things. And then we look down on others who either don't have them or we look down on others who maybe even despise what we treasure. So this happens in individuals, but it also happens throughout cultures, classes, and different people. One pastor called it the superiority of the difference, right? In fact, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, has a whole chapter where he's trying to describe what, it, what this sin is like. And so he talks about this idea of boasting, but he doesn't say, he says, rich people don't really boast in just the fact that they're rich. What do they boast in? They boast in the fact that they're richer than someone else that they know, right? So we don't necessarily boast uh, that we have beauty, but that we're more beautiful than someone else, Right? We don't necessarily boast in our intellect, except for the fact that we know we're smarter than somebody else, right? We take, we take what is good, but we make them ultimate, and then we use them to judge and belittle others. Now, we have a perfect example of this in the Bible, in the, in the Gospels. So in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, listen to this prayer of the Pharisee. And the heart that he has in praying this prayer, what you need to be worried about this morning is, it's within you. This is the same heart that we have. The heart of legalism, the heart of, uh, again, having superiority to the different, where we think that we're better than others, right? And you might say, well, Pastor, I'm, I'm, that's not me. It's everyone. Everyone struggles with this idea of belittling or thinking of the indifferent. And so notice how the Pharisee prays. This is Jesus speaking. He said, he also told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else, right? That's what everyone is tempted to believe, that you're good in yourself and that you're better than others. And so he says, two men then went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Greedy and unrighteous adulterers or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. Right? That heart is within us. 
Jesus isn't sharing this to this far-off group of people. He, he is sharing this to the disciples because he knows that heart is within us to be like this Pharisee and basically to think, I'm better than these people, so God, you've got to bless me, right? But then notice the tax collector. But the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so Jesus says, I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other one, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So here's another just personal illustration of how, how this can work. So when I was 18 years old and again moved to the Philippines to do mission work, um, pretty much would preach the gospel day in and day out, either at a film showing at night or we would go into schools, markets, all kinds of different things. And then on Sunday, it was like, okay, let's go to church, right? And so the first time I ever went to church in the Philippines, it was literally called Ocean Baptist Church, and literally the water came up to the door. I mean, I kid you not, like the, the ocean water just came right up to the door, and you had to wait for it to go back in to go into church. Uh, it was like 50 people. It was an amazing experience. But I was told, oh, well, church starts at 9 o'clock, right? And so, you know, I'm looking at my watch. It's 9 o'clock, and like two people are there. And I'm like, man, what's going on? Where is everybody? What's, you know, like, it's time to start, right? And 9.15, 9.20, 9.30, finally I'm like walking around like, are, are we, is it canceled? Did something happen, right? Like, what's going on? And I, the pastor finally translated and he came back and he told me, he says, yeah, we don't start church until everyone gets here. Right? Can you imagine if we did that here in America? <laughs> we're going we're gonna to wait. Uh, we're going to wait for the Plagueys to get back from their trip. Uh, who else is gone? Yeah, we're going to wait for Connor and Becky to come back from the, no. Yeah, we don't do that here, right? That would, that would be completely different. Is one right or wrong? Ah, that's where the indifferent, right? Our, our nature and our flesh would say, yes, one is right and one is wrong. And what I believe is right and what they believe is wrong, right? Same thing in El Salvador. In El Salvador, they actually don't go to church on Sundays. And about my third trip down there, I finally, it finally clicked to me, like Sunday morning is actually not when they worship. Uh, Sunday morning is when all the men in the country play soccer, like from middle school boys up. I mean, like the whole country shuts down and everyone plays soccer, right? But they go to church Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday night. Now, is it right or is it wrong, right? Or is it just different? different. Right? It's just different, right? Exactly. So when we think about these things, tend to, t typically what we do is we don't say that it's different. What we'll do is we'll say it's less or it's my way is better. And we do this in all kind of different cultural ways. And when we do that, what does it do? It creates division. And it creates, our, our society is just filled with this type of division where we just basically have superiority to the different, where we look down upon people who are different than us. The gospel, though, changes all that. Why? Because it, it says everyone is equal. You're all sinners in need of a Savior, and Jesus died to save sinners. And it's only by grace through faith that someone is saved. So Paul says, look, remember, he says it twice. Remember that you were alienated from God, that you were alienated from each other. 
and that the gospel transforms both relationships. It transforms, I, I tape this to my ear, it's still falling off. Remember that uh, you were separated from God, but you were also separated from each other. And what the gospel does is it transforms both relationships with God and with each other. So that's actually the second point. So point number two, reconciliation. We need reconciliation, but not just with God. We need reconciliation with each other. And how does that happen? It's only through Jesus. Only the gospel can create the church of Jesus Christ as we know it today, where, again, different backgrounds, different diversities can come together, not only come together, but can actually walk in life together because of the gospel. Reconciliation to God and each other through Jesus. So look at verses 13 to 18. He says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he may have no effect the law, consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God and one body through the cross, by which he put the hostility to death. He came and he preached and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So again, in verses 1 to 3, we were dead, but God, in verse 4. Now in verses 11 and 12, we were alienated, but now, right, there is peace. And how do both of those happen? Through the cross and through the gospel of Jesus. So then the gospel is what reconciles us to God, but also then to each other. The gospel goes after your heart. It, it restructures how we begin to identify ourselves, right? So no longer is race or nationality or intellect or careers or social status, no longer are those things the primary things that we use to create our own identity. All of these identity markers become secondary to the gospel, meaning you are not an American best if you are an American first, you are an American best if you are a Christian first, and then American second, right? All of these identity markers become secondary to the gospel. Therefore, the connections then that we have with each other become stronger and deeper because the gospel is what is driving our primary identity. Now, the question this morning is, what is driving your primary identity? Because the gospel is going to destroy this idea of comparison, this comparison apparatus of how we create our identities. Instead, we now have peace with God and the gospel. Now we have peace with each other. It's through the gospel that we're able to then look at brothers and sisters who have different races, different politics, different education levels, different economical differences, and we should have a bond with them greater than anything else because the gospel is what puts us 
together, creating then this new society, this new temple through Jesus. How is it possible that God can do that? It's by the cross. Notice the language that he uses here. He says, he destroyed hostility through the cross. He literally slew the hatred and hostility. He defeated it by dying on the cross. I have a verse up here, 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's a beautiful verse that says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God put Jesus in the place of our sin. He took the hostility that we deserve so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus wasn't ashamed to identify with you. He wasn't ashamed to identify with you in the way that you sin and are separated from God. He fully embraced you in that sin, and then he crucified it. He paid the price for it on the cross. And now he's not ashamed to welcome us into the family and to call us brothers and sisters. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. Again, we'll have it on the screen here. It says, For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. And that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus is not ashamed to call those who confess him as Lord brothers and sisters. Sisters, he identifies with us. He left the throne of heaven in order to come down so that we would have this access to God the Father directly. So isn't that an amazing thing? We have access to God the Father through Jesus. Now, the question is, are, are you actually taking advantage of that? You know, isn't this... This idea of prayer can either be this overwhelming thing or underwhelming thing, right? It's either underwhelming and like you're like, God doesn't really hear me, he doesn't really care, or he's so big, like it doesn't matter what I say. Or it's overwhelming and, and you just want to sit before him and tremble, but then you're still not you're you're still afraid to ask him to actually do something, right? And I love this is the way that uh, Tim Keller uh, quotes what this change looks like, and I actually have the quote on the screen. It says, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And we have that kind of access. Now, if you have little children, you know exactly what this feels like, right? You get that knock on the door, 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm thirsty, right? Now, I'll be honest, just as a dad, my heart is not like warmed to like open the door and be like, here's your water, okay, you feel better, go back. No, it's usually like, what? You know, I don't even want to get out of bed. It's like, who's there? Go back to sleep. We have to actually lock our doors now. When, when we were uh, younger and had younger kids, we didn't lock our doors. And boy, that was a mistake. Uh, we literally wake up with a kid right in front of your face. It's the worst way to wake up. And somehow they would create these voices that sounded like demons. Um, Daddy, I'm hungry. I want some food. 
And uh, yeah, so we learned to lock the doors, right? But, but what Tim Keller is getting at here is he, he's like, look, if you're a believer, you have access to go to the king with pure innocence. And he's not ashamed to be stirred. Actually, God doesn't sleep at all, so you can go to him at any time of the day. He's, he's open, right? But you have that access to go to your father and to speak to him because Jesus has redeemed us through his blood. And not only has he redeemed us, he took those who were far away and those who were near. So those who are far away, those will be Gentiles, right? Literally without hope in the world, literally godless and just not, not even receiving promises or future hope that there would be a Savior, right? They're just out there in the world dying, and when they die, they go to hell. Then you had the nation of Israel who did have the promises. Some of them believed, some of them rejected, right? But both those who are close and those who were far away both received the good news of preaching that they could be brought near through the blood of Jesus. We were dead in our sins. We were alienated from God. We were alienated from each other. But now the gospel brings us near. It gives us new identity. And it reconciles us to God and to each other. And so he finally then, this last point, point number three, he makes this declaration, right? He declares that we are now God's new temple. He makes this final declaration. We are now God's new temple. He's actually going to use three illustrations if we walk through the text here. So verse 19 to 22, he says, So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints. You are now members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Now, this is one of the most formidable passages for describing and giving us a picture of what it means to be a New Testament church. What it means that the new covenant has been fulfilled from the Old Testament to the new, and what it means to be a church. Look at these descriptions. He says, one, we're not only are we saved from our sins, but remember, we are saved to something. We don't just get a clean slate and start over. Actually, no, we get this whole new identity. We get this whole new life. The Holy Spirit now lives within us. We are now born again. And so we're saved to this new identity. And now we have this new community that we are saved to. So he says that we are God's people. He says you are fellow citizens, right? God's new nation. Then he says, you are God's household. Literally, you're part of the family. So it's one thing to be a citizen, right? I'm a citizen of Dallas County. I, do, do, I, I don't know everyone in Dallas County yet, right? Working on it, but don't know everyone in Dallas County yet, right? So there's some distance between people as I pass them by. I just don't really know them. But then he, he escalates it and says, not only are you fellow citizens, but you're part of God's household. Well, I know everyone in my household probably too well, right? I know how they, um, how they eat, right? I know the, the, the noises that they make after they eat, right? Uh, I know um, their, the way that they laugh, right? Um, so in, in our family, Micah has the greatest laugh. 
Anytime you hear people laughing, you will always hear his laugh above everyone else's because of the pitch that it, it, it comes out as, right? And I can't replicate it this morning because I, I don't know how it comes out of him like that. But, just, you, but you learn about intimate details, right? They know my failures, right? They see, they see their pastor in his worst moments. They see when I get angry. They see when I am tired and just short-tempered maybe. They see when I'm greedy and selfish. They see all those things, right? Why? Because we're family. They don't then take those things and weaponize them against me. What do they do? They forgive me. They love me. We're a household together. And that's how Paul describes the church. You are part of God's household. You are a family. But then he takes it even further and says, you're God's dwelling. You're his temple. This new temple that is now made up of living stones instead of an actual physical temple. Now, I don't know about you, because I'm not really big into construction and building, but I know if you put brick upon brick upon brick, those bricks are close together, right? And they share in weathering through storms. They share in triumphs. They share in everything that happens. So the intensity increases in relationship with God and with each other, right? Again, we're citizens of God's kingdom. He is our king. We are his citizens. Then we're part of his family. He is our father. We are his children. And then he dwells in the temple, and we are the living stones in which he dwells within. And so then what we must ask ourselves this morning is, do we really believe this? Do we really believe what Paul says about the local church? Could it be that some of our identity markers are really more important than the gospel, and that's why we don't see the church then as we should, and as the scripture is calling us to see it? If the gospel is the primary definition of who we are, then our love for the local church will naturally grow as we grow in the gospel. Why? Because the most powerful force of all is the gospel. And if that is what is driving you, then you won't help but then to love what Jesus loves because you love him more and more and more. And so the most powerful force of all is the gospel of Jesus. It's more powerful than the nation that we live in. And we live in an amazing nation. But the gospel is more powerful than that. It's more powerful than your family. And some of us have amazing families, right? It changes the way that you look at everything, which means then we can't just be casual consumers who just come to church maybe once or twice a year and just consume a message and then feel good about ourselves and then go out in the world and live no different than how the world lives. That is not what the Bible calls following Jesus is like. Instead, we have to have personal accountability. We're family, right? This means that we know the false dreams and shortcomings and triumphs of one another. It means we're transparent with one another. We invite others into our lives to keep us accountable. Now, the primary way we do that at Westwind is through, through life groups, small groups, connection groups. I can't remember what we call them. Groups, right? That's the primary way that we do that. And to be honest, right now, groups have taken the summer off, right? And so, but you can still do this. 
In fact, discipleship happens on four levels. It happens in a mass level, right? Actually, this is discipleship right here. Just being regularly attending in church actually creates accountability, right? Where we can check in on one another, care for one another, but we can't do it really deep, but it is still a surface discipleship level. The second discipleship level then would be just doing ministry with each other. So whenever we give out these opportunities, like working with uh, Waukee Area Christian Services or something like that, like going together and doing it as a group, that's actually discipleship. That can happen at a smaller level. But then the next level is getting together with 15 to 20 people and actually sharing life together. And then there's one more level, getting together with like two or three people and really holding yourself accountable. Those are the four levels of discipleship. Most churches only get two of those levels, if they even get one. Right? Most of them just get one corporate gathering. They miss the other three. Other churches, you get two, but usually not all four. But it's in all four that we have opportunities to then invite the community to just come alongside and do what we're doing, right? To do life with us as we do it on the corporate level, uh, the outreach level, the small group level, and then intimately in what I would call a core group where we actually hold each other accountable. In other words, there should be someone who you're telling what your faults are, what you're struggling with, to hold you accountable to those things. Because if you're not, then I mean, here's just what the Bible is saying. You won't be growing in your relationship with Jesus. You'll hit, a, you'll hit a ceiling. You'll hit a level where your growth in Jesus will just stop. Why? Because you're not actually exposing, allowing the gospel to do its work and expose your sins and allowing believers to then hold you accountable and walk together in life with you. And so the second, again, is this idea of whole life hospitality, right? So in a family, you don't have a whole lot of personal space, right? In fact, I don't know what it is, but anytime my wife goes to the bathroom, my kids know it, there's a radar that goes off, and immediately they're knocking on my door. Even if I'm standing or sitting right there in the living room, right? They will knock on that door to ask mommy a question instead of asking me a question, right? There, there's this idea that we share space with each other. We eat together. We do life together. We don't just show up to events. We, again, we actually do life together. What does it mean to be hospitable? It means to be, uh, to be generous to the stranger. Right? It means to be welcoming to the stranger. In fact, in Timothy, Paul says that's, that's a requirement for pastors. That they're to be hospitable. Right? Welcoming the stranger. Well, actually, that qualification given for pastors really is a good qualification for all believers to be welcoming to the stranger, to do life together. But then there also is this corporate aspect, right? When we gather, what's so special about Christians gathering together for worship is because we declare God is among us, right? He's, he is in us, yes, personally, but then he is pleased to be among us. And all throughout scripture, when the people of God gather together, God does something, Right? In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 13, they're worshiping together is what it says. And then the Spirit says, set apart for me, Paul and Barnabas, to go on the first mission trip. So it didn't happen through a conference. It didn't happen through a seminary. It happened through the local church worshiping together. Why? Because God dwells among us. And he specifically dwells when we gather together, when we share life together. But our tendency is to want to privatize everything, right? We don't want to talk about things. 
We don't want to open up our lives. And why we don't want to open up our lives is either because we don't have a spiritual life and we're just afraid to, to confess that, or we're afraid of rejection, right? Well, the Bible doesn't call us to live in fear, does it? In fact, it says fear not. But it does say, Paul says specifically in Galatians, to bear one another's burdens. And this is the truth. Life is messy. Your life is messy. My life is messy. And guess what? We're not called to walk in ignorance of that. We're called to walk in openness of that. In fact, the only way that the gospel will transform us is if we corporately acknowledge that and then walk in life together. You know why? Actually, C.S. Lewis, again, he, in his book, Four Loves, he talks about this idea that it takes a community to actually draw out your true personality. It takes a community to draw out your, your true personality. In fact, I've seen this in, in my own marriage. So, like, um, there's ways that I can make Joanna laugh. She has, like, I don't know, 12 or 15 different laughs, right? I love her. I'm supposed to know these things, right? And so she has these different laughs. But you know what? There's like a three or four of them I can't draw out of her. I can't. Now, our kids can. Other women can. Even other men can draw out, these, like, draw out this personality from her that I can't. You know what that is telling me? Or that's what that's telling us? Is that, again, discipleship doesn't happen in a closet. It happens in a community. And you actually need others to draw things out of you in order to make you holy and blameless before the Lord. And so if you're so privatized, if there's no people speaking into your life, literally you're going to hit a ceiling and, and just, you're just not going to be able to grow deeper in your walk with Jesus. The way that he has positioned the local church is to be done together, not privately. Now, yes, you're to have private worship and to read the Bible on your own, but then all of that is expressed and developed and cultured in the life of a community. And so you cannot know Jesus as fully and as deeply as what the Bible calls us to know him as without walking in spiritual community. So what things are you keeping private this morning? Your prayer life, your finances, what you watch for entertainment, how you treat other people. Again, you won't grow unless you invite others to walk in life with you and keep you accountable. God is pleased to use each other to work this out in our lives. We need each other. We are called a body. And trust me, my hands need my feet right now. And my brain needs my heart and my lungs. And without those things, there's just chaos right? So the Bible says, or Ephesians here says, look, we're being built up together into the simple meaning that it's a promise, meaning it could be today you're like, oh, you just exposed me. What do I do now? Well, you just take, a, you take your next step with Jesus and you confess. Maybe that you haven't viewed church as he has said it is. Maybe that you haven't viewed life and what, what it means to be a Christian as he has declared it to be. And so he says that we are building, being built up into this temple with the foundation being the apostles and the, and the prophets. That's just a short way of saying the Bible. Our authority is in the Bible, the Word of God. It is the truth of God. And Jesus is the cornerstone of this new temple being built up. Now again, Paul is pulling from Old Testament language here. From Isaiah chapter 28, uh, the Messiah is called the cornerstone of Zion. In Psalm 18, we're told that the stone one day would become rejected before becoming the, the chief 
cornerstone. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, what we've, if we can summarize, what we can see from this is that we are objects. We receive the most incredible display of hospitality that the world has ever known. We were foreigners, and yet God has brought us into his household. Jesus himself left the comfort of his own home in heaven in order to become homeless on this earth, to become forsaken by those who are even closest to him and to be cast out. We deserved exiled and to be homeless. We deserve judgment and, and, and isolation, and yet Jesus took all of this in our place. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you rejoice in that? Do you share that with others? Community is what life is about. It is a foretaste of heaven. So the big idea this morning is that through Jesus we have peace with God and peace with man. And we are a new society, a new temple. And so again, a picture of this reality is given to us in the New Testament through the Lord's Supper. Uh, it's a sign of the new covenant that we are called upon to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus until he returns. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And Jesus didn't die just to get you in the room, right? He died to get you to the table, to dine with him, and to remember what he has done for us. And so as we take the Lord's Supper, one thing that should, should do is just humble us. Humble us to the fact that we are invited to the, the table with the king. It should also lead us to repentance. And it should unite us, right? We're all invited to this table. Regardless of our background and status, we're all invited to this table through the blood of Jesus. And, and finally, this table is really a declaration of what our future is. The future is, is that Jesus will return and that we will be with him, which is why he tells us to do this in remembrance of him until he returns. And finally, Jesus is going to redeem all of you when he returns, not just some of you, not just an idea about you, all of you. And so as you take the Lord's Supper, it actually involves all five senses of who you are. It involves your smell, your taste, your sight, your, your hearing the word spoken over you. You will actually touch the bread and and observe and, and smell the grapes as, juice as you drink it down, right? So Jesus is redeeming all of us through salvation. And so this table is open and it's closed. It's closed if you are not a believer and have not confessed Jesus as Lord. In fact, he, he gives stern warnings. Paul gives warnings that if you take the Lord's Supper flippantly, that, that it will actually cause physical harm, right? That it can make people sick. But it is open. It's open to anyone who has confessed Jesus as Lord, anyone who has followed him in obedience through baptism. And so we have stations. We have one up here in the front, and I have two in the back. I have gluten-free options and dairy-free options as well. Uh, and so those are going to be over to my left. And so but I have a station in the back right and a station up here. And so Amy is going to begin just to play and lead us in a song. I invite you just to pray with me and then take a moment and just search your heart. Maybe this morning you have unconfessed sin or unresolved reconciliation with a brother and sister that needs, needs to happen. If that needs to happen, I would encourage you to wait to take it and to go to them. And so again, 
This is our future. This is, this is our true reality of who we are. So let me pray, and then we'll worship together through taking the Lord's Supper. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that we have hope in you. Thank you that you destroyed the wall of hostility and that you're creating one new temple, God, one new people, one new nation through the gospel of Jesus. God, these are deep realities. Lord, may we begin just to evaluate in our own lives how we have looked down and, and looked to the different, to the superiority of the different and have exalted and puffed our own self up, God, when we shouldn't. Help us to see the world through the lens of the gospel. Help us to believe the gospel and help us to be transformed by the gospel. God, as we pour ourselves into your text, may it pour over us the grace and mercy and truth that is there. We ask this all in Jesus' name.